This podcast was recorded in the autumn of 2023, live in a classroom at Yale University. Class 15, Hannah Arendt, Totalitarianism and the Nature of Evil. So today we're going to talk about Hannah Arendt. And if, if this is the first time you're reading Hannah Arendt, whenever I look at students and like think that they're going to read Hannah Arendt for the first time, I have this like moment of jealousy because I still remember the thrill of being 19 years old in my second year in college and discovering Hannah Arendt for the first time. And that thrill has never left me. I've, I've been thinking with Arendt since then. She's one of my first loves and my greatest loves and my longest lasting loves. So it's really kind of a pleasure to be able to talk with you about her. Um, I'm going to start out with an anecdote and then I'm going to transition from the the Frankfurt School, so just to kind of get you into the mode of Hannah Arendt. Um, so the, the anecdote which I'd like to tell, to, to, uh, some people, I should say, hate Hannah Arendt. Uh, other people really love Hannah Arendt. So back in 1997, I was on a Fulbright in Warsaw, which at that time was kind of gray and bleak um, and nothing like Warsaw is now, but still quite beautiful in a, a weird way. And I had a friend from undergraduate who was doing a Fulbright, who was doing research in Olomots in the Czech Republic. And I hadn't seen him in several years, and this was all kind of pre-internet when you didn't like chat with everybody on your cell phone every day. You know? And he decided he was gonna take the overnight train to Warsaw and come visit me. Um, so he took this overnight train to Warsaw and I was waiting for him at the train station in the central war of Warsaw, which was an extremely bleak and somewhat sketchy place at the time. Um, and I got there, and he had been up all night reading Hannah Arendt's book on revolution. And I hadn't seen him in several years, and so I'm waiting for him, it's like six in the morning at the train station, and he gets out of the train, and I'm like, I'm so happy to see you. And the first thing out of his mouth is, we have to have a Hannah Arendt seminar. Can we use your apartment? Now, I had this tiny one-room apartment and I barely knew anyone in Warsaw at the time. But somehow, like miraculously, people came out of the woodwork, sociology students, political science students, so that like by five o'clock that afternoon, we actually had filled up my tiny one-room apartment with people who wanted to talk about on revolution. Um, and we only had that one copy of, of the book. Again, this is like pre-internet, you can't just pull up the PDF. We only had the one physical copy of the book that my friend had been reading on the train. So we took that to a photocopy shop to copy for everybody who was coming. And so we photocopied it with his notes in the margins, because he's one of those people like I do who takes margin notes. And some of the notes in the margins were like, you know, see the Kantian influence or compare to Hegel. But some of the notes in the margins were things like, I love you, Hannah, little heart. <laughs> so, so I like to tell this story to kind of get people, I, I won't tell, this is now a prominent professor and I will not tell you who it is, so I, I don't embarrass him, although he probably won't be that terribly embarrassed. Um, <laughs> still loves Hannah Arendt, but I tell you that to get you in the right spirit of Hannah Arendt. Um, 
Okay, she is going to be coming out of a very similar cultural intellectual space as these Frankfurt School thinkers, all of whom she knows. So let me give you a kind of brief epilogue on them. Um, the saddest in some way is uh, our, our nutty Wilhelm Reich, who in 1954, the American Food and Drug Administration initiated court proceedings against him for carrying his orgone energy accumulator illegally across state lines. Um, and he's brought to trial and found guilty and dies of a heart attack in prison. It's, it's very sad. Um, the other somewhat nutty one, Marcuse, has a much happier story because he goes on to have a whole intellectual life based in California in the States and becomes almost a kind of cult philosopher hero of 1968, where he champions the rights of women, he champions the rights of gays, and talks about, you know, the the possibility of finding a new revolutionary subject from marginalized groups. Um, he does manage to kind of commune with American culture in a way that the other ones don't. Um, and the German philosopher Rahel Jäger was just here giving some seminars um, on the Frankfurt School on Critical Theory, and I listened to her talk about Marcuse and Adorno yesterday, and she's absolutely brilliant. You should all pull up some of her lectures, either in text or on the internet, because she's just wonderful. Like, she's wonderful at talking about these guys. And she really made me appreciate anew what it meant for Marcuse and for his students in a totally different world and a different place to come to this idea of revolution and what it meant to be a subject and what it meant to be a revolutionary subject again. He has also famously um, becomes Angela Davis's dissertation advisor. And I think I gave you a little fragment of one of her memoirs about him, which then, you know, so then we move into a whole American tradition of ideas moving across boundaries. But that relationship is very, is very interesting. Um, okay, Adorno and Horkheimer never get used to America. They kind of can't really stand it for the most part. And they go back in 1950 to Germany and reopen the Institute and continue throughout their lives to struggle with these questions. You know, what has modernity meant? What has enlightenment meant? Um, was the Holocaust a departure from modernity or the culmination of modernity? For Adorno, the Holocaust and Auschwitz became that which revealed all hidden meaning. Um, is history really progress towards hell? You know, is, it, is there actually a kind of Hegelian but inverted Hegelianism to it? And, and Adorno comes to the idea that no, there's no end of history, but I mean, his idea of dialectics is there's dialectics, but you're not actually necessarily going towards some kind of goal. Nevertheless, this understanding of how we get from enlightenment um, to terror will haunt him for the rest of his life. Um, so remember this argument that Adorno and Horkheimer make in Dialectic of Enlightenment, which is very hard to read, but very central to everything that comes afterwards, is that the Enlightenment, the enlightenment unleashes this idea of domination as a mode of behavior. You know, you try to understand something, you collect knowledge, you categorize it in order to control it. 
in order to shape it. And that man's domination of an objectification of nature became, led to objectification and domination as a mode of behavior. It ricocheted back. You know, it led to domination of, of a man's domination over an objectification of other men. It, it turned against himself. And so eventually we're going to get the sacrifice of the self to the self, which is always a temptation that desire to lose the self together with the desire to maintain it um, until in effect you get the negation of the self and the loss of the self to the herd. And the herd, this kind of this mass unthinking crowd that goes along with fascism is going to be the true product of enlightenment. Um, now, Hannah Arendt is going to enter that conversation basically right at the center of it. And she hates Adorno, by the way. She's very close to Benjamin, but hates Adorno. Um, but she's going to try to get at that same, what is that relationship between totalitarianism and the Western tradition and the Enlightenment tradition? Is it a deviation from modernity? Is it a departure from modernity? How do we get, how do we get this herd? And she, Adorno and Horkheimer will use the phrase the herd. Um, there's a relationship to Heidegger's idea of das Mannselbst, the conformist self. Hannah Arendt is going to disentangle this herd into the mob and the masses, and they're going to be two distinct categories for her. Um, but I will, I will get to that in a few minutes. So first, like, back up and give you a little bit of background on Arendt. Um, Hannah Arendt is also, like Adorno and Horkheimer, she is in the United States in 1943 when the news of the Holocaust reaches them. Um, and they are trying to understand, and she's gonna, they're all, they're all philosophers trying to understand historically where this comes from. How do you get from this liberalism that was an enlightenment legacy through what historians now call post-liberalism, this kind of mass politics that reaches out beyond the political sphere, and so you have social clubs, and you have songs, and you have food, a politics of charisma, of a cult of personality. Um, Karl Shorsky calls this politics in a new key, these kind of new notions of totality that aim not just to create you know, a different form of government, but a different kind of human being. You know, the Stalinists talked about a new man. Nazism and Stalinism in their own ways were about creating different kinds of human beings. Stalin uses the phrase engineers of human souls. So out of this post-liberalism, this politics of the masses, this politics that reaches out its tentacles in all spheres of life, we're going to get totalitarianism. And this haunting question of whether these social engineering ideas about human perfectibility are going to lead us right into what Hannah Arendt will call factories built for the purpose of producing corpses, which is how she refers to the gas chambers. Okay, um, Hannah Arendt is um, at the same generation um, as the Frankfurt School thinkers. Uh, she was born 1906, an assimilated German-Jewish family. When she is 18 in 1924, she goes to Marburg to study with Heidegger. Um, she's influenced by Nietzsche, she's influenced by Plato, by Aristotle, by St. Augustine. She's coming from a classical tradition of philosophy, and she's very much coming from German philosophy, ancient Greek philosophy and German philosophy above all. Um, 
She's a student through the radical um, polarization of the interwar years. She is in Germany in 1933 as the Nazis come to power in Germany. And at that time she says, for me, Germany means my mother tongue, philosophy and literature. I can and must stand by all that, but I am obliged to keep my distance. Um, now, keep in mind here when the Nazis come to power, you know, and the anti-Semitic laws come into effect, that from the point of view of the Nazis, being Jewish is not about religion. It's totally irrelevant, like how you feel about God, you believe in God, you don't believe in God. In that sense, it's not the same conversation that we're going through with you sideline God and then you kill off God and what do you do if you've killed off God? How do you find the bridge? They're having a conversation in which it's about race. It's about blood. Um, and that's, in, in many ways, you know, the Nazi laws that come into effect are modeled not after religious laws and wars of religion in Europe, but are modeled after the Jim Crow laws in the United States. Not just implicitly, but explicitly. Um, the Nazis actually sent people to study American racial segregation laws and then copied, plagiarized. You, you, you could say. Um, okay, in any case, that's just an aside. So she is now a Jew in Nazi Germany and is going to have to get out, um, despite the fact that you know, she's, she's not engaged with Judaism per se. Um, in 1933, she's arrested, she's released from prison, she leaves Germany illegally um, and goes to, um, goes to Paris via Prague and Geneva. Later in 1941, she's going to go to New York and the rest of her career will be in the United States. Um, and again, like Adorno and Horkheimer, she's in the United States, she's in exile, um, in a foreign place, when this news of the Holocaust reaches her. And I'm gonna read you a quote from a very famous interview that she does in 1964 with Gunther Gauss. Um, I've taught this interview, it's been transcribed and translated into English. It's kind of an extraordinary interview. Um, and I had taught it many times over the years, but at a certain point, um, they act, somebody actually dug up the original footage and digitalized it and put it on the internet. So if you understand German, or even if you don't, it's worth pulling it up and just like watching, even just watching her facial expressions and watching her body language, you know, and watching how she speaks to Gunter Gauss now coming back to Germany in 1964. I was completely captivated by this when this came out on the internet and listened to it more times than I want to admit. Okay. Um, but one of the things she says there, she says, you know, what was decisive was not the year 1933, at least not for me. What was decisive was the day we learned about Auschwitz. That was in 1943. At first, we didn't believe it. Before that, we said, well, one has enemies. That's entirely natural. Why shouldn't a people have enemies? But this was different. It was as if an abyss had opened. Because we had the idea that amends could somehow be made for everything else as amends can be made for just about everything at some point in politics. But not this. This ought not to have happened. Um, 
And the context for her writing the work that is what I'm going to focus on for the rest of today's lecture is that it is written in the immediate aftermath of 1943 and getting this news. You know, so she is going to write, you know, a huge, like, you know, being in time phenomenology of spirit type, like, epic philosophical work um, called Origins of Totalitarianism divided into three parts. Um, and she's doing it with, in some sense, very little time for reflection, because she's in the immediate aftermath of getting this news. She writes it in emigration between 1945 and 1950. And the extraordinary thing about this book, among other things, is how it has lasted. You know, people have, you know, torn it apart, critiqued it, agonized over it, torn their hair out over it, written other works inspired by it, but it remains the work that we go back to again and again and again to try to understand that totalitarian experience. Um, and so I'm, I'm going to try to kind of take you through. It's very dense and there are a lot of different things in it. In some ways, it's much, much easier to read than reading Hegel or reading Heidegger because it's not abstract. I mean, parts of it are abstract, but there's a lot that's also concrete. In some ways, there's a kind of seamless integration you know, of the empirical and the theoretical. Um, and she's just a wonderful writer. Um, it's a study that is essentially born of the revelation or the insight or the intuition of some essential similarity between Nazism and Stalinism. You know, even at the moment that they are fighting each other to the death, the sense that you're watching two antithetical, but yet in some ways deeply similar phenomenon. And phenomenon that have not appeared earlier in history. Something is new that's happening. And so the question is, how do, you, how do you figure it out? How do you figure out where it comes from? And so the origins of totalitarianism actually kind of tries to dig back and figure out what were these stages by which we got here? Where did this come from? Um, now, in some ways, the point of departure of this work is the same as the point of departure of so many other things we've read, which is that the great problem of modernity is the problem of alienation. You know, the problem of alienation in modernity is going to create certain kinds of insufficient but necessary conditions, certain kinds of vulnerabilities of susceptibility. There are three big parts of this book. Um, the first part is anti-Semitism. The second part is imperialism. The third part is totalitarianism. I'm going to try to kind of take you briefly through the main lines of arguments and spend most of my time on the third part. Um, there are some broad, sweeping historical generalizations that cause historians to, to cringe. Um, <laughs> Because you know she was not sitting in an archive working very closely with sources. She was like looking around and making some general statements. But there are also some just uncannily lucid moments of, of insight. And the book is looking for the origins of, of racialism, of thinking in terms of race, which is one of the things that preoccupies her. Where do we get this pathology from of thinking about human beings in terms of race? And how does this turn so dark? You know, why, like, what is it about this categorization? And ca the idea of categorization is also a big preoccupation of what went wrong with the Enlightenment. While we were on the model of the natural sciences, the natural sciences are, are interested in kind of calculating and categorizing. 
like you take animals and you put them in species or you take, you know, you, you take DNA and you put them in kinds. I mean, all of these categories and calculations and computations that are used in physics, that are used in chemistry. Um, so this, where does this racialism comes from? Um, where does racial thinking in general come from? Where does anti-Semitism in particular come from? Where does imperialism come from? And how do we get this breakdown of liberalism in the modern democratic state? And then how do we get totalitarianism? It's a story in some ways about the breakdown of law, and she takes law very seriously, the shift from a rule of law to lawlessness, um, and this legal breakdown is going to play a kind of philosophically significant role, um, the legal breakdown that's going to lie at the heart of the destruction of human subjectivity. And she dwells on a couple historical turning points. One of them is the trial of Alfred Dreyfus in Paris um, at the turn of the century. Um, so some of you probably know the story of the Dreyfus trial. I'm going to go through it in about 45 seconds, which is terribly reductionist. But my colleague, Maury Samuels, teaches like whole courses on it and has spent a lot of his life working on it. So you can commune with it in detail with Professor Samuels. Um, so there is a, a, a French military officer of Jewish origin named Alfred Dreyfus, born in 1859. Um, he was a wealthy French Jew. And he was accused of treason. He was accused of being a German spy. You know, the French discovered that there was some spy, someone from the French military who was working as a spy for Germany. Now, the French military had a culture at the time that was conservative, it was Catholic, it was monarchist, it was anti-Semitic. But Dreyfus felt himself to be very French, and he was a French military officer. So he was suspected, he was kind of framed, he was scapegoated, he was uh, court-martialed in 1894 and convicted and sent to a lifetime in exile in a place called Devil's Island um, off the coast of uh, French Guiana for solitary confinement. He protests that he's innocent. Um, his innocence will later be proved, but he's convicted nonetheless, um, and he's going to serve some time before the trial is eventually overturned. But what captures Arendt and not only Arendt, also Theodor Herzl, this was the beginning of modern Zionism, what captures her about this trial is not Dreyfus himself, or not the fact that there could be corruption in a kind of elite circle in which somebody is framed for a crime somebody else does. What terrifies and captures her about this historical moment was that the masses go out on the streets and shout, death to the Jews. It is the moment when politics goes out into the streets. It's a moment when people who were previously politically engaged are running around on the streets shouting death to the Jews. Um, now, this is the moment that the Viennese journalist Theodor Herzl, who is covering this trial for a Viennese paper, who himself was an assimilated Jew, says, okay, Jewish emancipation failed, anti-Semitism you know, cannot be gotten rid of, and that's where the birth of modern Zionism comes from. Um, Herzl, in particular, you know, drawing on ideas that have brewed for hundreds of years and in past decades, but not taken the precise form. But Herzl's shock at seeing in Paris, you know, in, in the great capital of enlightenment, in the great capital of the French Revolution, that there people are on the streets counting dust to the Jews. 
Um, what for Hannah Arendt is going to be most significant about this trial is not the emergence of modern Zionism, but the emergence of these two groups, the masses and the mob, on the historical stage. Um, and that's why this trial is going to matter to her. It, it's the symbolic moment of the failure, not only of Jewish emancipation. Um, I hope I haven't offended people. People are now leaving. <laughs> um, it's a disturbing trial, but it's, it happened. Um, it's a symbolic failure, not only of Jewish emancipation in particular, but of liberalism in general. Because there's a sense that if liberalism failed in France, then it just failed. Because that was the great homeland of Enlightenment liberalism. Okay, so who are the masses and who are the mob? Um, Hannah Arendt is going to take these words, the masses and the mob, and she's going to make them almost into kind of technical philosophical terms. Um, they're not synonymous, which is significant. For Hannah Arendt, they're not synonymous. Other people may use them interchangeably, but in this particular book, they have a particular meaning. The mob is the gangsters. They are the gangsters, they are, in Hannah Arendt's understanding, the dark underside of the bourgeoisie. They hate the society from which they feel excluded. And they do feel excluded, and they are resentful, and they're going to try to push their way back in. Um, Hannah Arendt will also make the argument that the mob's values are those of the bourgeoisie cleansed of hypocrisy. This book is very harsh on the bourgeoisie. You'll see there's a lot of kind of subliminal or not so subliminal Marxist influence here. Um, Marxist overtones, let's see. So she's going to make, it's very harsh on the bourgeoisie. The mob has inherited the values of the bourgeoisie cleansed of hypocrisy. And she then further makes the argument that the elite and the bourgeoisie secretly delight in the irreverence of the mob. And I'm gonna read you some of my favorite quotations. Okay, she said, the temporary alliance, she says, between the elite and the mob rested largely on the genuine delight with which the former watched the latter destroy bourgeois respectability. This difference between the elite and the mob notwithstanding, there is no doubt that the elite was pleased whenever the underworld frightened respectable society into accepting it on an equal footing. The members of the elite did not object at all to paying a price, the destruction of civilization, for the fun of seeing how those who had been excluded unjustly in the past forced their way into it. And then there's a very famous passage about the, the opera, the musical, um, the Three Penny Opera by the Marxist playwright Bertolt Brecht playing in Weimar, in, um, Weimar, Germany. And she writes about this dry groschen pair, the Three Penny Opera. She says, the theme song in the play, which is Erst kommt das Fressen, dann kommt die Moral, which means like first you just kind of grab and devour, and then you think about the ethics of it later. It sounds much better in German. Erst kommt das Fressen, dann kommt die Moral. So the theme song in the play was greeted with frantic applause by exactly everybody though for different reasons. The mob applauded because it took the statement literally. 
The bourgeoisie applauded because it had been fooled by its own hypocrisy for so long that it had grown tired of the tension and found deep wisdom in the expression of the banality by which it lived. The elite applauded because the unveiling of hypocrisy was such superior and wonderful fun. She will go on to talk about high society's romantic predilection for gangsters. And her idea of the mobster is essentially the alter ego of the bourgeoisie. And one can easily slip. You know, she says, the hardworking family man unemployed could easily become a gangster. Now, Nazism, she will then describe as an alliance between the bourgeoisie and the mob, which succeeds in engaging the masses. Now, who are the masses? The, mass, the, the mob is its own kind of elite group in a certain way, this dark underside of, of the bourgeoisie. The masses are the previously politically unengaged, probably indifferent majority whom nobody has thought to politically engage in the past. They have no communal body, they have no organization. Um, they, are, they are coming out of society from which they have not been particularly politically involved, not being members of the elite. The term masses, she writes, applies where we deal with people who either because of sheer numbers or indifference or a combination of both cannot be integrated into any organization based on common interest, into political parties or municipal governments or professional organizations or trade unions. The masses now are belatedly, liberalism had always hoped that the masses were going to come out on the historical stage and then there would be mass democracy. And the problem here is going to be the masses come out now on the historical stage, but they are not led by the liberals, they're led by the mob. And they're not going to come out on the side of liberalism, they're going to come out on the side of the mob. Um, and she says Nazism is going to recruit not from the elite but from the masses. It was characteristic of the rise of Nazism, she says, that they recruited their members from this mass of apparently indifferent people whom all other parties had given up on as too apathetic or too stupid for their attention. She's a very sarcastic writer, you'll, you'll, you'll notice. Um, okay, so the mob comes out on the historical stage, dark underside of the bourgeoisie, its own elite, and they engage the masses. And the masses then come out led by the mob, shouting things like death to the Jews. Okay. I'm now gonna move on to imperialism. She has essentially a kind of Marxist-Leninist interpretation of imperialism, in which imperialism is inextricably connected to the growth of capitalism and the rise of the bourgeoisie. Um, and the idea of capital here is very important. Marx and Engels write a lot about capital. Their big famous book that nobody, including myself, has ever actually gotten through all of is Das Kapital, Capital. When they talk about capital, capital is money, but it's not money you use to buy things. It's not like the money you take to like go get some coffee or go get a new pair of running shoes or go buy a chessboard or do your grocery shopping. Capital is money that's there for the purpose of investing to making, and making more money. 
Um, so she's talking about the accumulation of capital, money for the purpose of making more money, which kind of plays the role of an original sin in this analogy, the way property does for Rousseau. And that leads to, she said, under capitalism, this accumulation of superfluous capital and superfluous workforce, which gives rise to a constant need for expansion. The logic of capitalism is such that money is supposed to produce more money, and so you need to keep going somewhere with that. Now, for Lenin, imperialism is the last stage of capitalist rule. For Hannah Arendt, it's the first stage of bourgeois rule, and the accumulation of capital is going to give birth to both imperialism and the mob. And she will say that imperialism temporarily saved the nation state from the mob by giving the mob something to do along with the racial doctrine, and that is go off and colonize other countries and exploit them. Um, imperialism, she says, distracted people from class loyalties towards national loyalties, and I'll read you a quote here. Said, the truth was that only far from home could a citizen of England, Germany, or France be nothing but an Englishman or German or Frenchman. In his own country, he was too entangled in economic interest or social loyalties that he felt closer to a member of his class at a foreign country than to a man of another class in his own. Expansionism, this imperial ambition to take over other parts of the world and exploit them for capitalist purposes, expansionism, she says, gave nationalism a new lease on life and therefore was accepted as an instrument of national politics. Um, okay. But what historians, she goes on to say, failed to grasp was that the mob could not be identified with the growing industrial working class, and certainly not with the people as a whole, that it was actually composed of the refuse of all classes. This composition made it seem that the mob had abolished class differences, that those standing outside the class-divided nation were the people itself, the Volksgemeinschaft, as the Nazis would call it, rather than its distortion and caricature. The historical pessimist understood the essential irresponsibility of this new social stratum, and they correctly foresaw the possibility of converting democracy into a despotism whose tyrants would rise from the mob and lean on it for support. What they failed to understand, she says, was that the mob is not only the refuse, the garbage, of, but also the byproduct of bourgeois society, directly produced by it, and therefore never quite separable from it. They failed for this reason to notice high society's constantly growing admiration for the underworld, which runs like a thread through the 19th century. Okay, so you've got the masses and the mob. The masses are gonna come out in the historical stage that engaged by the mob, and the bourgeoisie is gonna go along with it because they, in fact, are kind of delighting in having the curtain pulled on their own hypocrisy. What we're going to get now in part three of this book um, moves to the space that Adorno and Horkheimer were talking about and how do we get to the destruction of subjectivity? How do we get to the destruction of the self? Okay, so she'll say she's gonna make a, a bunch of kind of complicated philosophical moves here and I'm gonna just give you a little sampling at the, here. 
She says, people are going to become superfluous. Superfluous is a big word she uses here. People are, human beings are going to become superfluous. They're going to become superfluous in two ways. The first is through statelessness, and the second is through atomization and conformity. And she now makes a historical argument which has become, which has come back again and again and continues to be central to how we understand the problem of refugees. She says, World War I, which led to this dissolution of empires, the rise of various kinds of right-wing nationalism and other crises, the creation of borders, a situation where you can't move around without a passport, led to the creation of stateless people. So she brings you back to the end of the First World War and suddenly you need a passport in order to be a human being. Stefan Zweig writes about this very movingly. Um, and then what happens to the refugees? What happens to the people without passports? And she says, well, what we learned from that is that it turns out that this whole legacy of the French Revolution, of the Declaration of the Rights of Man and of the Citizen doesn't, doesn't work. It doesn't hold because there was an assumption that declaration of the rights of man and declaration of the rights of citizen meant the same thing. But she says it turns out that without any state to enforce those rights, they effectively don't exist. So there is no such thing as human rights. There's no such thing as the rights of man. There's only such a thing as the rights of citizens who are protected by governments. It turns out when you don't have a passport and there's no government to protect you, effectively you have no rights. Um, it turns out that these ostensibly inalienable human rights were absolutely unenforceable outside of citizenship. And she makes the argument that this condition of complete rightlessness human beings who had no legal rights at all, was a necessary precondition for mass extermination. Oh. She writes, one, one, of her, you know, one of her most moving essays and one of the most personal essays is an essay she wrote in 1943 called We Refugees, and it remains a classic text of the experience of being a refugee. And she says, if we should, she says, remember that being a Jew does not give any legal status in the world. If we, Jewish refugees, should start telling the truth that we are nothing but Jews, it would mean that we expose ourselves to the fate of human beings who, unprotected by any specific law or political convention, are nothing but human beings. I can hardly, she writes, imagine a situation more dangerous since actually we live in a world in which human beings as such have ceased to exist for quite some time. Right. So she goes on to say that not only then have the victims of totalitarian movements been rendered superfluous, but also the perpetrators. Um, recruited from the atomized, alienated masses in exchange for an end to their isolation, for their collective organization, they are also rendered superfluous. Their selves are extinguished. She says, totalitarian movements are mass organizations of atomized, isolated individuals whose most conspicuous characteristic is their demand for total, unrestricted, unconditional, and unalterable loyalty. We may say, she writes, that radical evil has emerged in connection with a system in which all men have become equally superfluous. So there's no more individuality. The victims, she said, have become invisible people. 
There's no more death, there's no grief, there's no memory, and the boundary between victim and oppressor is constantly blurred. This is one of her most controversial claims. She says subjectivity here is being extinguished not only on the part of the victims but also on the part of the perpetrators. There are no real selves left, either among the murderers or among the murders. And that totalitarianism has a need to extinguish individual identity. Um, and this destruction of the individual self happens before actual physical extermination. She makes a very controversial claim that by the time the Jews were led to the gas chambers, they were already dead. Their selves had been extinguished. Okay. She's going to then this is part of a larger argument she makes about transparency and the effacing of boundaries. You know, so there are three boundaries that are going to get effaced to some extent in this analysis. Um, one is between truth and falsehood. So it's what, what meaning does the word murder have when we are confronted with the mass production of corpses? You know, we're now in a world in which the boundary between truth and fiction has been eclipsed. We're living in a fictitious world in which everything is possible. So ideology creates a fictitious world. And it's very persuasive because you can eliminate all the arbitrariness and contingency that is the actual state of reality and make everything seem like it gets swept up in one central narrative, which might be false but has its own logical consistency. The second boundary that gets effaced is between the public sphere and the private sphere. And this will become very central to any understanding of totalitarianism. This eclipsing of the private sphere. There is no more private space to stay out of politics, to do your own thing, to be left alone. And in Stalinism, you're gonna see that people like, the regime is not only going to care about what you do, it's going to care about what you say, it's gonna care about what you think, and it's not just going to care about what a teacher says to her students, Students, it's going to care about what your, what your lover says to you in bed. There is no space outside the interest and the grasp of the regime. Um, and the third and the most controversial goes back to this idea that the, the facing of the boundary between rulers and ruled, between victims and executioner, because everybody's subjectivity will get extinguished. Everybody is going to become a kind of agent provocateur of everybody else. Totalitarianism, she says, has discovered a means of dominating and terrorizing human beings from within, in the sense it eliminates the distance between rulers and the ruled. What totalitarian rule needs, she says, is to fit, is to guide the behavior of its subjects, is to fit them all equally well for the role of executioner and the role of victim. And so, she says, the distinguishing line between persecutor and persecuted, between the murderer and his victim, is constantly blurred. You know, and this is something you see at the height of Stalinism, where anybody can, you can denounce your neighbor at any given moment. You know, somebody was rolling their eyes when they heard Stalin's name. You can denounce your neighbor, that person is gone, they're off, they're in the gulag, they're executed. But that person can also do the same thing to you. So you're both infinitely powerful and infinitely vulnerable. Okay, this eradication of subjectivity. 
Um, the concentration camp, she says, by making death anonymous, robbed death of its meaning at the end of a fulfilled life. In that sense, they took away the individual's own death. And this is a kind of polemic with Heidegger. For Heidegger, the only moment that was absolutely yours, your own, was your own death. Death was mindness, death was the aminokite. And Arendt says this is going to be taken away under totalitarianism. In this sense, they took away the individual's own death, proving that henceforth nothing belonged to him and he belonged to no one. His death merely set a seal on the fact that he had never really existed. Okay. Now, together with all of these things, she says, is a refusal to acknowledge the boundaries of the possible. This kind of belief that anything is possible in a fictitious world. This belief in human omnipotence. The taking, literally, of Ivan Karamazov's provocation in The Brothers Karamazov that if God is dead, everything is permitted. The totalitarianism takes that literally, that everything is permitted. Their moral cynicism, she says, their belief that everything is permitted, rest on the solid conviction that everything is possible. The concentration and extermination camps, she said, serve as the laboratories in which the totalitarianism's fundamental belief that everything is possible is being verified. Um, okay, in my last five minutes, I want to tell you a little bit about the Eichmann book. Um, she ends Origins of Totalitarianism with comments about radical evil and crimes that can neither be punished nor forgiven. She says, when the impossible was made possible, it became the unpunishable, unforgivable, absolute evil, which could no longer be understood and explained by the evil motives of self-interest, greed, covetousness, resentment, lust for power, and cowardice, and which therefore anger could not revenge, love could not endure, friendship could not forgive. Now later she appears to change her mind about whether or not the evil of Nazism was radical or banal. Um, in 1961, after the Israeli Mossad illegally kidnaps and extradites Adolf Eichmann, who was the administrative civil bureaucrat who organized the final solution, meaning the mass murder of the Jews in Europe, they find him living under an assumed name in Argentina, kidnap him, take him to Jerusalem to stand trial. Um, you can see the footage of this. You could read the transcripts. It's all now like up on the internet. Um, Arendt is sent by the New Yorker to cover the trial in Jerusalem. It's an extraordinary trial. I mean, it's, it, it, it's a trial that educates a whole generation about what this, this meant. But what chills Arendt, and it's significant here that she's listening to Eichmann testify on his own behalf in her native language. He's speaking in German, she's listening in German. And what chills her is the grotesque discrepancy between the monstrosity of the deed and the mediocrity of the man. She's like, he's not, not only does he not seem like a monster, you know, but he just kind of seems like a clown. I mean, he was just this, like, opportunistic bureaucrat who says, like, okay, well, like, the loyal bureaucratic subjects of good governments are lucky, and the loyal bureaucratic subjects of bad governments are unlucky, and I was doing a good job at my job, and I happened to be unlucky because it was a bad government, you know, and if I had been a government telling me to organize these transports, you know, not to send people to the gas chambers, but to send them somewhere else, you know, maybe people would be happy, but I was just doing my job, and, like, I didn't pretend 
particularly hate Jews. I was just, you know, and she's like, why God, he can't come up with a single sentence that's not a cliche. And it becomes clear that his inability to speak is connected to an inability to think. He's unable to think for himself and he's unable to think from the standpoint of, everybody, of anybody else. Um, she will be hated for this book. Um, she'll get death threats to this book. This book will tear apart, you know, not only New York, but like intellectual society and a lot of the rest of the world because people will say she's trying to exculpate Eichmann. She's saying he's not so bad. It's a misunderstanding of what she's trying to do. For Hannah Arendt, Eichmann's great crime is a failure to think. And this doesn't make him better than other criminals, it makes him the worst. Because the greatest crime is a failure to think. There is never an excuse for failing to think. The fundamental moral imperative is that you think. And you think from the eye. Yeah. Um. Afterwards, she, her friend Gershom Sholem, who appears in um, Monday's lecture as the person, the um, Walter Benjamin's friend who was trying to kind of pull him into Jewish philosophy. He sends a letter to Arendt when the Eichmann book comes out in 1963, accusing her of lacking love for her own people, of lacking love for the Jewish people. And she sends a very famous response. She says, I have never in my life loved any people or collective. Neither the German people, nor the French, nor the American, nor the working class, or anything of that sort. I indeed love only my friends, and the only kind of love I know of and believe in, in this is this love of persons. It's a very famous response, this kind of this exchange of letters with Shalom. Okay, um, let me just leave you with um, one more thought about Eichmann in Jerusalem. I mean, she's, the book is so controversial because she's been accused of blaming the victims in various ways. She also has a whole argument about the Unirat that I don't have an attempt to get into. But the combination of, of origins of totalitarianism and the Eichmann book is in some ways a profoundly universalist interpretation of the potential for human evil. She rejects attempts to explain the Holocaust through appeals to national character. She rejects that there was something particular about Germans that made them into murderers or something particular about Jews that made them into victims. Um, there is a certain comfort you know, in thinking that as long as we know that the evil people are a certain kind of people and we are far away from them, then we can still be safe knowing that we're far away from the bad Germans. Um, and this universal knowledge that Arendt understood, this rejection of the fact that the Germans were simply evil, made it impossible for anyone to sleep soundly at night because she makes the argument that this potential, that totalitarianism was exploiting a potential of alienated masses in conditions of modernity that is a potential all of us have with us all the time. And there's nothing particular or essential about races or nations that make some people have this potential and others not have it. The lesson for her is that we've learned what men are capable of. 
Um, and the last thing I'll leave you with this is, is one of her comments after the war. She says, for many years now, we have met Germans who declare that they are ashamed of being Germans. I have often felt tempted to answer that I am ashamed of being human. <laughs> okay, I'll uh, see you on Monday. Original recording and editing by Guy Ortoliva. Podcast production by Ryan McAvoy.